on Friday, a couple days ago, I had to fly to Charlotte uh, for a quick uh, 24-hour trip. And I don't know about you, but uh, airplanes are always a convicting scenario for me from an evangelism standpoint. Uh, It is easy to kind of go about your normal routine of your busy uh, life uh, with your kind of normal routine of people without sharing the gospel. But what do you do when God uh, literally straps a stranger into the seat next to you for a few hours? Uh, especially when you get to talking, they ask you what to do, what, what you do, and they find out uh, literally my job is to talk about Jesus. And so sometimes I do better than others. Uh, but on Friday, I must confess that my heart wasn't into it. Uh, I, had, I had to work on this sermon. Um, I've got a lot to prepare for a conference this upcoming week that I'm speaking at. And I just need to get a lot done on the plane. So I'm sitting there on my laptop. The seat next to me is empty. And selfishly, I'm hoping uh, that nobody's going to join me. Um, or if they do, you know, they're a good, good old-fashioned Bible Belt evangelical believer and I don't have to worry about their eternal estate. That's how bad your pastor can be sometimes. Well, guess who God puts next to me? An African refugee. And so we get to talking, and through his broken English, I discover he's a Christian. Praise God, I can get back to work. (laughs) So we talk for a little bit, put on my noise-canceling headphones, and go back at it. But here's the thing, apparently he had never flown before, which I'm still wondering how he got from the Congo to the U.S., Uh, but regardless, um, he had no idea what he was doing on an airplane. So he keeps tapping me on the shoulder and I take off my headphones and he's asking me all these questions. He didn't know how to put on the seatbelt. He was putting the seatbelt on the wrong end. So I had to show him how to use the seatbelt. He actually listened to the flight attendant safety instructions. Who does that? And so he had a lot of questions about that. So I had to explain how the oxygen mask works in the unlikely event of an emergency. We get up in the air, the plane starts you know, turning, and he's freaking out, thinking we're all about to die. I have to calm down, tell him how airplanes work. He's asking about mountains down there and rivers down there. And I found myself getting frustrated. Dude, you're saved. What more do you want from me? That's how bad it can be. May I suggest that that little shameful antidote of a story is emblematic of a glaring deficiency within our tradition of conservative evangelicalism. We value the gospel. We value evangelism. But we have this proclivity to think that that is what it's all about. In fact, in its worst forms, we are even skeptical when Christianity takes on the identity of the needs of the world through social justice. We start worrying that it might be a slippery slope into the dreaded social gospel. For those unfamiliar with that term and and these debates within Christianity, social gospel is the the, the language that we have given to uh, the liberal progressive church, uh, mainline denominations and so forth that in many ways have forsaken the gospel that have made it all about care for the poor and racial justice and uh, reaching the marginalized of society and all that stuff, but the gospel is forgotten. And so it turns into a form of works righteousness where it's, it's to be a Christian is not about faith in Christ. It's about 
doing good in the world. Now, we reject the social gospel as we should, but I fear that in so doing, we neglect the social implications of the gospel. Well, our passage this morning is going to challenge that neglect. What we will see here is not the social gospel, but it is a gospel that is social. Let's look at it in two ways. We're going to see gospel salvation and social implications. Let's start with gospel salvation. Now, let me say here, um, as I got into the translation of the, uh, of the passage this week, um, this is one of the times where I felt like the ESV uh, did not, is not the best translation. So what I read was our pew Bibles in the ESV, um, but what I'm going to be reading here is a different version that I think is a little bit more faithful to the passage, so you can just kind of listen to me, and follow, you're welcome to follow along in the ESV, but listen as I, as I kind of go through the passage. But here's what I think would, would be uh, maybe a more accurate uh, translation of the Greek. Verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. Um, different, different word for portico. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, and I like that word here, it's not in the ESV. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Now, the grammar of these uh, first three verses is a bit odd. So let me do my best to show us what's taking place here. It has to be viewed in light of our passage from last week, if you were with us, where the holiness of God visits the early church in judgment. Remember that the response uh, was that fear and awe came, up around, uh, came upon everyone, including the extended community, as they heard what happened. And then we see in verse 12, the apostles regularly uh, performing signs and wonders among the people. So Ananias and Sapphira falling dead, apostolic signs and wonders, and this gives way to verse 13, no one else dared to join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. What a crazy description of the church. You know what he's saying? The church has assumed the holy identity of their holy God. The church is being established as the new Israel, a people uh, the apostle Peter elsewhere refers to as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's Israel language. And here at the inauguration of the church, God is establishing the identity in stark terms such that the world is literally fearing the holy church. But notice it's a healthy fear like we looked at last week. It says that no one dared join them even though they were highly regarded by the people. It's as if the church has become a living holy of holies from the old covenant tabernacle and temple. A place where people feared to approach but at the same time it was held with a high regard of of holy reverence. Now, the obvious question that this presents is whether this should be the church's identity. I'm willing to bet uh, no one dares join us is not the mission statement of many local churches. Shouldn't we be a welcoming people with a welcoming culture? Yes, of course, but it matters how we become that. By the end of our passage... That's what the church has become. 
But let's see how they get there. Verse 14. Again, I like the word nevertheless. Nevertheless, more and more when men, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Nevertheless is a conjunction, meaning uh, it, it, it's meant to communicate surprise between, perhaps even irony, between two statements. And that's what the verse, that's what it does here. Verse 13 and 14 seem to be in contrast. No one dares join them and more and more are being added to the number. What this means is that their holy identity, ironically, is giving way to growth. But it isn't just any growth, it's revival. This is not casual association. Notice that it doesn't just say more and more were added to the number. It says more and more believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And that's the key. The fear of the Lord gave them this reverence and holy identity. But what it led to is people believing upon that Lord. In other words, people wanted their God. They believed upon their God. They joined this holy identity. And this is important to note. It begins there. It begins with more and more men and women believed in the Lord. That's conversion. That is faith. The church is not a philanthropic organization. It is not a charitable cause. It is not a humanitarian foundation. It is an an evangelizing movement. It will yield the ambitions of philanthropies, but never ever do we forget the primacy of the gospel proclamation and salvation of the lost. Piper says the church exists to alleviate all suffering most of all, eternal suffering. So it is gospel before social. But, conservative evangelicals, though it is gospel before social, the gospel most certainly does yield the social. Let's look next at the social implications. Verse 15. Actually, 14 will set up 15 better. So nevertheless, more and more uh, men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. In verse 15 here in this translation, it says, as a result, so key. So, they, so they, they're growing and they're believing. Conversions are taking place. Revival's happening. What's the result? As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Now again, um, as I've had to do often in these sermons, so as to not this passage get hijacked by unnecessary questions that it presents, I, I have to keep reminding us that in Acts we are witnessing a unique moment of apostolic authority, so don't get hung up on the healings. Uh, Peter's very shadow seeming to have power. Um, th- th- this is for the apostles. My, I, I, I assure you my shadow will heal, no- will heal nobody. Um, Will's might. Will, <laughs> Will might be one of those guys. Uh, no, instead view this as a prototype, okay? This is establishing a paradigm, and the, and the paradigm is that gospel salvation has social implications. 
What we see here, and the reason why it is so powerful and vivid, is the church has become a fount of redemption to the surrounding area as a picture of what it is meant to be. I love the details of this verse, that people are bringing uh, the sick into the streets, um, just hoping, laying them on beds and masks, just hoping that Peter's shadow might fall on them. Meaning the needy, like hungry beggars on the street, hoping to just get a glance, just a touch of this redeeming power that has come to town. Of the crowds gathering from all the surrounding towns of Jerusalem, bringing all the sick and all of the tormented, all the infirmities, bringing their wounds of the fall, clamoring after the hope of restoration that has come to town. Think about that. The church has gone from a holy identity that no one dare join them to people from all surrounding towns swarming to them. And in that closing line, all of them were healed. What has happened is that the church community has become a first century oasis of Eden. What it is, is that it is a moment of eschatological inbreaking where the future new heavens and new earth reality visits this cursed, barren existence for a brief, glorious moment in time. All were healed. This is meant to be a parallel of the arrival of Jesus in his ministry. After Jesus is baptized and calls his first disciples, the very beginning of his ministry, he goes on a healing spree. For example, we read in Mark 1, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many of various diseases, drove out the demons. Exact same language, exact same scenario that we see here in Acts. Now the tide would obviously turn for, against Jesus, so as it will turn against the apostles in the early church. But the point is at the beginning of both ministries, at the inception of both, both movements, we are given a picture of the end of the ministries and movements. And the end is total redemption. Salvation of souls is not the final outcome of the gospel. The final outcome is a complete change of the social order such that God's purposes come to bear upon this world. The highest aim is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let me be very clear. The social gospel is an unbiblical concept. The gospel is not a bunch of nice people doing good deeds in this world. The gospel is not that we can be saved by charitable acts. The gospel is that we can be saved by verse 14, where men and women believe in the Lord. So I am a reformed evangelical that believes in justification by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet, fellow Reformed evangelicals, it is just as unbiblical that justification by grace alone, through faith alone, does not yield the common good. Or to state it more firmly, we have every reason to question the validity of faith if it does not yield good deeds. Good deeds in this world does not yield salvation, but salvation always yields good deeds in this world. 
Orthodoxy without orthopraxy is dead orthodoxy. And so this is where our tradition, in particular, needs to examine ourselves. Were I preaching in a progressive mainline social gospel church this morning, I would boldly proclaim that all their good deeds and and all their work in the city and all of their justice and mercy, all of it is filthy rags that cannot save. And they need Jesus and the hope of the gospel. But I'm not. I'm preaching at a PCA church this morning. And so I need to proclaim with the same fervor that faith without works is dead. I think we do well with the glory of Christ stuff. How are we doing with the good of the bluegrass? Would the bluegrass be worse off if we shut our doors tomorrow? Is there so much mercy flowing from this church? Are there so many needs being met by this church? Is there so much fight for justice coming out of this church? Is there so much love, so much good, so much healing, so much renewal, so many good deeds emanating from this congregation that were this congregation to close, the common good of the bluegrass would be left with a gaping hole. That corporate question is answered individually. The church is not this building. It is not the ministries that this building houses. The church is you. We're here to help, of course. We're here to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. But ultimately, you, the collective membership of TCPC, embody our grand strategy to bless the bluegrass. So, more specifically, how are you doing? I'm so thankful really am to pastor a church where I don't have to ask the question, how are you doing when it comes to the gospel salvation stuff? If you're a member here, I think you got that. Of course, we could get it more. Of course, we're going to go deeper and deeper in the gospel every single week from this pulpit. Of course, we will never compromise that conviction. We never move past the gospel. But how are you doing with the social implications of the gospel? In some ways, I'm very encouraged by how outward-facing TCPC is and is becoming. I am regularly convicted and inspired when I hear stories of what you are doing in our community. And yes, I do think if TCPC closed her doors, the bluegrass would feel it. But I also think a church in our tradition always needs to assess ourselves here, in this area specifically, because it tends to be the area of neglect. Do you know what my dream is for TCPC? That we would evangelize more than the most conservative church and that we would do mercy and justice more than the most liberal church. So here's my challenge for us this week. I want every single one of us to bless the bluegrass with one good deed this week. That good deed won't save you, but because you're saved, I want you to do it. (laughs) And I'm not talking about routine courtesies that we always do. I'm talking about one self-sacrificial, cost you time and money, inconvenient, I don't want to do it, but I know I ought to do it, deed of mercy and justice. I'll I'll give you an example of what I mean. 
Um, you, you, those of you who know my preaching, you know I don't like to be the heroes of, of my own story. I am going to share uh, an example from my own life, but I feel like I need to redeem myself from my hard-hearted uh, opening illustration. So this is what the Lord did. So um, I'm sitting there on my computer uh, writing a sermon about the social implications of the gospel and meeting the needs of others, annoyed by this guy <laughs> tapping me on the shoulder. And I said, okay, God, I get it. Close the laptop. Sermon can wait. And I get to know him. And, um, and, and uh, what, I, what I found out is that he is, out of everything he's freaking out about, he's freaking about his connection. Um, we're flying into Charlotte, then he has to go to Houston. And he has no idea how to navigate an airport. Now, when I land, I've got to get to a commitment um, in fairly quickly. I said, but I said, man, I, I don't worry. I got you. I got you. We're going to figure this out. So we get, we get off the plane and um, we go to, the, go to the monitor. And um, I don't know if you've ever been to Charlotte's airport. It's a massive airport, but it's the only huge airport without a tram system. And so we land in Terminal E and his connecting flight is in Terminal A. It, it, it's probably a mile. And so I go, okay, buddy, let's go. And so we walk together across Charlotte Airport uh, for a mile and um, get to know each other. We get there. He's got about an hour till his flight leaves, and he's just so scared that he's going to miss his flight. I said, man, I promise you, I'm not going to let you miss your flight. But I know you've got to be hungry. And he had told me in there that he had saved up all his money to, uh, to uh, buy this plane ticket. He was going to a wedding that he wanted to be in. He bought, saved all his money to buy a plane ticket. And I said, man, I know you got to be hungry. Let me treat you to lunch. You're not going to miss your flight. So, you know, we go, I buy him lunch, send him on his way. Now, listen, um, the guy's going to heaven. Did that matter? Yes, it matters. Because thy kingdom come, thy will be done in Charlotte's airport as it is in heaven. It matters. And that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. I want something like that from all of us this week. God's going to put the opportunity before you. His spirit is going to convict you. And I want you to do it. Not just because I want you to do it once and then we'll move on. But because I want you to get a taste of it. Now I want you to think about this. TCPC has a membership of, after um, after planting hope, TCPC has a membership of uh, roughly over a thousand and we do a pretty good job of maintaining accurate roles. So those thousands are legitimately, those thousands are legitimately a part of our, of our community. I know not everyone is here on any given Sunday like this, but our congregation is also pretty good at listening to the sermons online when they're not here. So they're, they're probably listening to this too. So let's just roughly go with a thousand. Um, now let's, uh, let's take out these 200 so kids. We're going to let them off the hook this week. Uh, we'll take them off. Um, but then I'm going to add back in uh, the visitors, the regular attenders who are not on our roll, those who listen to the sermons online, specifically uh, from Hope Prez with the congregation, about 200. And so I'm going to, I'm going to add that back in. So I, in my incredibly rough and unscientific number is 1,000. Now I ask you, do you think the bluegrass would be different with 1,000 sacrificial intentional deeds of love and mercy and justice this week? You think that would have an impact on the common good? And that's just one deed. 
What if we came, became a people like this? What would that do? I'll tell you what that do. A church would heal a community like we see in our passage. It's not a social gospel, but it is a gospel that is social. Let me pray. <clears throat> Lord, to, to go forth and to sacrifice of ourselves and to give and to extend mercy to the needy and to do justice and fight the cause, we need strength on our own. And, and that's why every sermon needs the table. As we come and we fill ourselves on your uh, sacrificial love to us, um, the way you have redeemed us and now call us toward the work of redemption of this world. So fill us now with communion and send us forth as agents of redemption. We pray in your name. Amen.